Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. As more and more Americans have access to the COVID-19 vaccine, we can't overestimate the importance of sleep to support our immunity. Today's guest has been studying the relationship for years. I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Eric Prather, a clinical health psychologist and associate professor of psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Prather. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You and your colleagues recently published a paper about an NIH workshop you had regarding, I think it was circadian rhythms and sleep and immunity. Tell me more about this. Yeah, it was a really great uh, opportunity. Um, So it was kind of a joint collaboration from the National um, Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, so NHLBI, and um, the Infectious Disease Branch, NIAID, so the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, um, where they brought together folks from kind of circadian science, both um, kind of translational and basic researchers, and the sleep field, um, again, both basic and, and kind of translational or, or human researchers, um, you know, studying humans, uh, the, to, together to kind of begin to think about how we might be able to learn from those two areas, circadian and sleep, and its, and its relationship to immunity, and to identify gaps in the research and where we can use what we've learned from sleep and circadian science to perhaps enhance immunity which is obviously relevant um, to the, the pandemic that we're dealing with right now and, and uh, the, the new COVID-19 vaccine. So I, I talk to my patients about the importance of sleep for their immune system. And I always bring up this rhinovirus study that was done a few years ago. And it's so funny, I actually didn't realize that this was your study. So can you tell me a little bit more about the study, maybe some more information, you know, how did you do it? What did it show us? And, and how is your study different from those studies that are, are kind of similar, but that came before yours? Uh, sure, sure. So um, I was so fortunate um, to be involved with some other investigators that have you know, made a career running these rhinovirus challenge studies. And so I went to graduate school at the University of Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania, and these studies were all being done just across the street at Carnegie Mellon University um, under the direction of Sheldon Cohen. And so as I was in graduate school, I became really, really interested in sleep. Um, You know, University of Pittsburgh has a huge sleep medicine community. um, And so I was able to integrate some of those um, sleep measures into an ongoing um, common cold study. And so the way that it worked, and again, this was in collaboration with, with Sheldon and, and Martika Hall, who's a sleep medicine researcher, um, we were able to kind of recruit uh, about 164 healthy individuals. They were all outfitted with um, ACTA watches, right? So wrist actigraphy so that we could more objectively measure their sleep behavior of duration and say how, and their continuity of sleep. Um, and then these people, so they, they measured their sleep for, for seven days. They were then brought into the laboratory where they were exposed to a kind of a known quantity of rhinovirus. So we would shoot that rhinovirus into their nose. So everyone was exposed to the same amount. And then we would see who got sick. So then they, those individuals would then be quarantined into a, into a hotel 
I believe it was a Holiday Inn uh, <laughs> uh, there in there in uh, in in Pittsburgh, and and uh, and so they uh, they they stayed there, and we monitored them over the time period. So um, and you know to see see if they developed symptoms both by self-report, but more importantly, uh, objective symptoms. So first, so so basically the idea was like, we want to look at their sleep and see if it predicted the likelihood of who ended up developing a biologically verified cold. And so the way that we determined who had a cold was, was in uh, two parts. So first, someone had to be infected, right? So, um, you know, and not everyone who's infected actually gets a severe symptom. So in the same kind of way, when we think about COVID, people that are asymptomatic and don't actually develop what would be considered like COVID-19 symptoms. Um, and so the same was true for the rhinovirus. So we first wanted to see if someone was infected. And so the way that we did that was every single day, and this was true before they were exposed to the rhinovirus as well, is we would um, squirt some, some saline solution into their nose. It would fall out, we'd catch it, and then we'd take it into the lab and culture it to see if uh, the virus was actually replicating in the cells, in the nasal cells, right? Um, so if it was replicating, that meant someone was infected. In addition to that, or, you know, uh, yeah, so in addition to that, we would also draw blood 28 days huh. after the study and look for neutralizing antibodies. So, right, maybe we might not see replicating virus in, in the way that we did it, but if someone developed antibodies, um, we know that they were in fact infected. Okay, so, so those are our two ways of determining infection. And then it was around, um, you know, symptoms. And so the two that we use, and this is kind of historically was done in, in these co common cold studies over time was mucus production. So first we wanted to uh, quantify mucus production. And so the way that we did that was, you know, we would have people use tissues throughout the day. Um, they would collect them and then kind of a lowly research assistant would like bag them up and weigh them. And then we would subtract the weight of the bag and the tissues to get kind of a, a known quantity of mucus, right? Uh, and then the, the other way that we, the other symptom we were interested in was uh, congestion mm -hmm. and so nasal congestion. And so the way that we uh, assessed that was um, kind of a nasal clearance time. And so what we'd have people do every day is kind of tip their head back and then we would squirt a dye into, the, into their nose and we would time how long it took to get to the back of their throat. Of course, we also did this prior to exposure so that we could control for, you know, differences in, in people's noses and how things flow through them. But, you know, the longer it takes, the more congestion someone was, more congested someone was. And so, you know, basically, if someone was infected by our kind of the way we quantified it, and then if they met a criteria on like amount of mucus or time of, of, of uh, congestion, this clearance time, they were deemed to have a biologically verified cold. So we do all that. And ultimately, we get this zero one dichotomous variable outcome, right? Like you have a cold or you don't. And so, so now that we have that, we can look at um, the role of sleep in predicting someone's odds of, of developing hmm. a, a cold, right? And so what we found was, um, you know, people who slept less, kind of based on wrist actigraphy, um, were significantly more likely to develop a cold, right? So as a continuous measure, and that we were able, you know, this, this held for after we adjusted for a whole host of factors that we think are important. So you know, age, sex, um, you know, socioeconomic status, health status. I mean, again, all these people that come into the study were very healthy. They didn't have any psychiatric conditions, those types of things. But, um, you know, stress, all the things that had previously been associated with risk for a cold, um, even, even when we statistically adjusted for those things, sleep duration specifically 
seem to uh, carry you know, some predictive value. And then when we bend people into kind of amount of sleep, so we get an estimate of effect size, we found that you know, people that slept five or fewer hours were about four and a half times more likely to develop a cold than someone who slept more than seven hours. And then, you know, a little bit less, but still significant if you slept between five and six hours. So in general, if people slept six or fewer hours, they were about four times more likely to develop a cold compared to people who slept more than seven hours, which, you know, is, uh, you know, pretty, pretty important, you know, obviously kind of consistent with what we think sleep does to our immune system and puts us at risk. But I think to date, is probably the best evidence that we have that kind of sleep duration is a risk factor for susceptibility to infectious illness. And you know what I love? Like, so two things. I love that it's kind of linear, right? And and it's very easy to demonstrate to patients that, hey, these are the people who slept, you know, four or five hours versus these are the people who slept seven hours, right? But I also really like that you guys used actigraphy because I think the older studies were self-reported sleep, right? Right. So um, in a prior. So, right. So and, and in fact, um, we do find this duration variable uh, to to still hold in these prior studies. So what I did after this project was to actually go back to the prior cold studies and then pool the data together. Right. So if we kind of kind of pooled the, the sleep duration variable across you know, multiple cold studies where now we have many, many more people. So instead of 164 that we had in this actigraphy one, we actually ended up with 732 participants. Um, And we still find the same linear association that, you know, people that sleep less are at greater risk, Um, of course, because um, it was based on kind of self-report, you know, the the numbers are are a little bit different. The the effect size is smaller. Um, It turned out that if we bend people, it was like people that sleep less than six hours were, I think, 1.95 times more likely to get the cold than people who slept more than eight hours. Um, not not surprising that we, you know, it's eight instead of seven in this case. I mean, in in my experience, um, there's always seems to be like about an hour difference in uh, in someone's kind of average risk actigraphy sleep duration and they're self-reported for some reason. But either way, you know, even with self-report, it seems like um, you know, sleep duration just really plays an important role. So, so all these people that have kind of habitual insufficient sleep, um, you know, may be at risk if they're exposed. I mean, I always tell people that like the best way to uh, make sure you don't get sick is just to not get exposed. But um, and so that's why masks and social distancing are so important. But um, you know, sleep clearly plays a role, and 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 we're we're trying to understand some of the the mechanisms that help explain this and the role that sleep plays in in modulating the immune system, um, and particularly as it relates to aspects of um, protection against infectious illness. So I think it's really clear cut in terms of quantity of sleep, right? But I'm kind of wondering if you've looked at the impact of sleep disorders on immunity. So I'm kind of thinking about the patients who have untreated and maybe undiagnosed sleep apnea and they sleep eight or nine hours. So they have the time, right? But their quality isn't there. So um, is there, is there data looking at that group of of patients? So, I mean, there, there certainly hasn't been the same level of rigor with respect to kind of rhinovirus exposure to my knowledge. 
um, with obstructive sleep apnea individuals, right? I mean, it's it's just, you know, these studies are really hard to do. And that sample was just not one that was, you know, this was more of an opportunistic analysis uh, for for uh, sleep and, and rhinovirus uh, challenge. Uh, you know, however, I mean, I think, you know, we do know that uh, individuals with uh, obstructive sleep apnea do tend to show some differences in immune function that may be relevant. I mean, you know, and a lot of this work has been focused on things like um, elevated levels of systemic inflammation and, and things like that. I mean, I, as far as I know, there's only been one clinical trial uh, in obstructive sleep apnea uh, with respect to how people respond to vaccinations. Um, mm. I was looking at that earlier today. And, you know, from my read of it, it looked like it wasn't particularly striking that people with obstructive sleep apnea showed any differences relative to healthy controls in how they responded to, to vaccines. At least in this case, it was the influenza vaccine. Though the, the sample was not, um, you know, very large. And, you know, there may be other ways of kind of thinking about how uh, obstructive sleep apnea may um, impact uh, kind of immune health. I mean, much of the, it does seem clear that with respect to obstructive sleep apnea and say cardiometabolic outcomes and, and focusing on things like inflammatory pathways, there is a clear relationship there. And, you know, even if obstructive sleep apnea per se isn't a strong driver of susceptibility to infectious illness, um, you know, there's an obviously a, a need to um, kind of focus on that population. I've always thought that, you know, if, if there was a way to move the needle around sleep health for mm -hmm. a population, it would be in just screening everyone for obstructive sleep apnea in the hospital or, oh or something gosh. like that. And something that we've absolutely thought about here at UCSF. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of upstream factors around workflow and, and reimbursement and things like that. But I think, you know, when you have people in the hospital and, uh, you know, you have them there anyway, like what if we could screen them? Um, you know, people, you know, I, at least in my clinic, you know, nine times out of 10, uh, the only reason someone comes and starts asking about obstructive sleep apnea is because their bed partner is dragging them in there to talk <laughs> right. about it. Right. <laughs> I mean. And, and it's, it's, it's like, you know, there's just, it's just unreal, like the, the burden that, 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 that particular disorder where we actually have good tools to, to fix this problem. Right. And so it, I feel like it's such a missed opportunity and hopefully one that people will take on, um, take the charge to, uh, to kind of address this. Kind well, of that's just really it, right? You're totally, you're, you're preaching to the choir. I mean, we have horrible sleep in the hospital, right? And then we're like, well, why aren't people getting better? <laughs> we, we miss a ton of sleep apnea. You know, I think, I think you're right. Um, and unfortunately, there is this big disconnect with what you can do in the hospital and get reimbursed for, you know, and I, and I almost feel too that, you know, you in the research realm, you guys are doing all of this really important work. And then, us, you know, sort of on the clinical side, we're doing what we think is important work. And I kind of wonder um, whether we need to have, you know, maybe more interaction. So, you know, for example, when the Nobel Prize went, um, it went to those circadian researchers a few years ago. And so this was huge, right, for our world. It was like a, a feather in our cap for those um, in sleep and circadian research and tangentially us as sleep clinicians. And so I, I wonder if you feel like we are kind of 
doing almost parallel play and, you know, between the clinical side and the research side and what we can do to maybe cross pollinate better? I mean, I think that's a great um, question and a and such a striking problem. I mean, I th- I think you can even go farther and say, you know, how closely um, or or uh, how regularly do sleep and circadian scientists work together, right? I mean, I think right. even even on the research side, and I I think there have been great strides. I know the uh, American Academy of Sleep Medicine and the Sleep Research Society have certainly kind of been driving that point home of the the need to really integrate those fields. And I think um, this workshop at NIH was really a good example of how that could happen. Um, and, you know, the other other venues have also kind of pursued this. You know, with respect to the the research and the the clinic, the clinical divide, um, I, I think that is certainly true in in some cases. And I mean, you know, I, I feel like as a so I'm a behavioral sleep medicine provider. Um, you know, we also are doing research on kind of how do we scale up, you know, CBTI interventions, for instance, mm-hmm. like how do we deliver this to primary care? Like how, you know, so in those ways, if it's around the intervention itself, um, you know, there, there seems to be some harmony in, in that. I think it's, it's less clear around circadian science, um, in part because like as providers, and I mean, maybe you can speak to this too, like it's, I feel like we don't have adequate tools to really capture someone's true circadian rhythm, right? So mm-hmm. we always talk about in our clinic, like, wouldn't it be great if we could actually get people's DILMO? Like that oh would be, gosh. you know, yes. like, right? Like we have someone who has delayed sleep phase, but, and we're like, okay, well, the, you know, the tools we have right now are light and melatonin <laughs> supplementation. <Right. laughs> and, and, and which also kind of feels funny. Like that's, that's what we're working with. But, but I mean, you know, certainly there have been, you know, like the, the development of, kind of some of these, you know, orexin receptor antagonists are, are also kind of inter- really interesting from a circadian sleep perspective. But, but you know, like, I, I'm always kind of at a loss of like, you know, how, you know, how do we make sure we're dosing this at the right time? Like, do, you know, we don't know someone's actual kind of melatonin peak and, and, and these types of things. And, and for me, who's a sleep researcher and not a circadian scientist, I, I do kind of feel like, gosh, like, how do we kind of move the research that is clearly sophisticated into this realm so that we can kind of meet the needs of our patients better. And I think we can get there. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's going to require, you know, some of these, the way that academic medical centers work and, um, you know, where we can actually kind of get these tests that people can do that we can then integrate into their care to actually um, kind of impact their lives. I'm hopeful but, it, you know, I think you're really right that there are some gaps um, in how we move some of this work forward. I, I also think that, you know, some of the some of the research that that we do in the in, in sleep medicine or, or the sleep field and circadian science really is not um, ready for being moved into the clinic. Right. Like a lot of us are focused on mechanism. Mm-hmm. And and so maybe it's it's you know, we're still building the knowledge base. So, of course, you know, at the end of every grant. You talk about, you know, and this this will become a target for an intervention. Um, I think there is some opportunities to be kind of a bit more innovative in the way that we deploy these interventions. And I think there's a big, big uh, opportunity for um, kind of more precise, personalized interventions as we begin to gain this information about, say, someone's 
sleep need or their true circadian rhythm. And imagine having that information to then demonstrate to the patient and just very clear, right? This is Dilmo. This is where you need, you know, light and whatever. And I just think it would be, it would just make it um, so much more visible for the patient, easier to understand. Yeah. And I mean, you know, like I think, I think that's one of the really wonderful things about, um, you know, working in sleep, the sleep field at this time is that there does seem to be more engagement, you know, mm-hmm. more it, it, with it, with the, the general population around sleep and sleep health. Um, that is really exciting and certainly wasn't, I don't feel like it was the case, you know, a decade ago when I started kind of getting involved in this work. And, um, you know, so I, some of it has been spawned by industry, right, and wearable technologies for good or bad. It is something that is kind of compelling to the, the typical user. Um, to want to know about their sleep. And, um, you know, of course, there's a there's still quite a ways we can go as far as kind of accurately, you know, estimating things like sleep architecture. But mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think it's a matter of whether that will happen or not. I think it's just a matter of when. And so I think, uh, you know, it, it provides a lot of exciting, uh, innovative um, and compelling opportunities in the future to really move uh, the field of, of sleep and circadian science um, and make it more of a pillar for health. And so it's, you know, I think it's a really exciting time and I'm, I'm just excited about the, the engagement um, in general with both patients and beyond in kind of their sleep and putting more of a value on their sleep. So let's take a short break. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. What does the future hold for sleep medicine? We'll explore new innovations and their implications during Sleep Medicine Disruptors, coming this March. Free for ASM members, this two-day virtual course will help you reimagine healthcare. Learn more and register today at aasm.org disruptors21. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. I'm with Dr. Eric Prather, sleep scientist and psychologist, talking about the connection between sleep and immunity. So talk to me about COVID and the COVID vaccine specifically. What do we need to be telling our patients about the role of sleep and, uh, and the idea that sleep is really important to help their body make antibodies to protect us from COVID? There is now, um, you know, a growing uh, literature around sleep and vaccination response that I think has an important place when we think about the COVID-19 vaccine or any vaccine really, but you know, obviously this is kind of the thing at the front of everyone's mind because it's, you know, in a lot of ways, it's, it's kind of this light at the end of this very, very dark tunnel that we've all been living through uh, for the past year or so. And, you know, I think that, you know, both experimental studies, you know, classically all the way down, you know, uh, Beagle, 2002 that was in JAMA around the influenza uh, vaccine, uh, looking at experimental sleep loss and kind of how that blunted the production of uh, antigen-specific antibodies, to our work looking more naturalistically, um, both in response to the influenza vaccine and the hepatitis B vaccine, really finding these relationships between insufficient amounts of sleep and kind of a, a, a lack of B cells to produce those uh, protecting antibodies to the to the particular virus uh, really suggests that 
you know, sleep is, you know, perhaps a critical piece to this. Um, thankfully, these vaccines, the COVID-19 vaccines are incredibly effective, right? So the, mm -hmm. you know, the Moderna and Pfizer, like 94, 95% of efficacy, the Johnson and Johnson uh, efficacy data was, you know, I read about today is around 85%. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's, that's a really solid uh, vaccine. And so thankfully, you know, even among people who aren't getting as much sleep as they'd like or need are likely to be affected or, you know, to be protected from that. Um, but I mean, I think anything that we can do to try to enhance that immunity um, to ensure that, uh, you know, our immune system is, is functioning at the best that it can during this uncertain time is, is really uh, important. And I think one of the, one of the open questions is really around uh, with respect to these these vaccines is how long people will maintain these antibodies over time mm -hmm. and it could be that sleep plays an important role in the maintenance phase i mean this is an open scientific question but i think one really worthy of exploring given that we know how important sleep is to regulating and promoting our immune system that it could be that um you know maybe the, the vaccine is incredibly effective, um, you know, in its in initial doses, but that wanes over time and, and sleep might kind of buffer against kind of any additional de degradation of those antibodies. I think another place where sleep might play an important role is in, in vulnerable populations where mm -hmm. we know their immune system is already a little bit compromised. So if we think about people that have autoimmune conditions like rheumatoid arthritis or uh, older adults where they're already experiencing some immunosenescence, you know, the, the extent that, you know, sleep can provide, you know, just an extra dose, like a like an adjuvant to that vaccine, um, I think is an, an important question that we want to take seriously. We already know that sleep is really important for our health. But I think during this really critical time in which your your body and your immune system is really trying to kind of build that army. Uh, of immune cells to protect you or immune the memory T and B cells as well as the antibodies um i think it's it's just you know would would be short sighted not to also prioritize your sleep so let's talk about this messaging then it's not it's not just enough to say sleep is important the night before your vaccination and the night you know the day of that night it's really important but what i'm hearing from you is we really need to emphasize that we need to continue to have good sleep and adequate sleep hours well past the time that we receive our initial vaccinations. I think that's true. I mean, with respect to the timing, again, I think that's a really important question. So, you know, in, in 2020, we published a paper um, looking specifically at whether kind of when someone had less sleep uh, did that seem to be related to their antibody response to vac vaccination? So in this case, it was the influenza vaccine. And what we found was that while people who had less sleep on average kind of made fewer antibodies, in this case, to a particular strain of uh, that was in the, the, the vaccine, so the, the New Caledonia strain, um, you know, it was when we looked at a day-by-day -day kind of, you know, observation of like when was when they got less sleep, when did it seem to matter for their vaccine? It turned out that it was the night before and the night before that, that significantly predicted someone's antibody response um, mm -hmm. to the vaccine, suggesting that there was kind of an important timing aspect to this. 
However, this requires replication, um, you know, before we change the messaging on this, because I think we know enough about sleep in the immune system to say that, you know, sleep is really critical to how we regulate our immune system from day to day. The vaccine uh, process doesn't happen immediately. And so, you know, there are different components to kind of when the, when the, you know, the virus the, or the, excuse me, the vaccine is taken up, how it's processed, how the memory is generated, that kind of unfolds over time. And though we don't have enough information about like when sleep is kind of driving all of those pieces or what it does to kind of grease the wheels of, of how vaccines work, um, because there are so many pieces to kind of antibody generation over such a time course that, you know, it makes sense to really try to try our best to ensure we get the sleep we can and the sleep we need um, over that time period. I do think scientifically that, you know, especially during this time of, you know, uh, all these people getting these vaccines, that universities and academic medical centers and research units are in an incredible, have an incredible opportunity to actually answer these questions mm -hmm. about timing. And so I really hope that there are those studies ongoing or being planned in addition to, you know, focusing on the obstructive sleep apnea question that you brought up earlier. I mean, right, like we're going to have all these people that are getting vaccines and just by knowing that information and tracking their antibody responses over time, we can gain kind of knowledge in an accelerated fashion, um, taking advantage of uh, kind of this amazing scientific breakthrough in the development of a vaccine in, in such a rapid pace, but also adding to kind of our, our sleep science. So one thing that you mentioned to me last week that's really kind of stayed with me, um, you know, we were talking about the importance of sleep before you get your vaccination. And you mentioned that we have to be really thoughtful and careful about the possibility of people misunderstanding the message. So like the idea that somebody didn't sleep well the night before they were scheduled for their vaccination, or maybe they were a night shift worker, that they would maybe misunderstand and say, you know what, I didn't sleep well last night, there's no point in me getting a vaccine. And that's not the message, right? No. So I mean, vaccination hesitancy is should be at the front of everyone's mind who's in this space. I mean, that is something that is so important to tackle if we're to get through this. Um, this is a, a together problem. Um, and it's true. So in, in telling you about that, right, so we, so we published this paper on sleep and hepatitis B vaccination in 2012, and it got a lot of media attention. And one of the media people kind of phrased it that way that like, oh, it sounds like you're saying that if I don't sleep well, that I shouldn't get the vaccine. And that couldn't be further from the truth. These vaccines work so well. Um, and it, if anything, sleep may provide a little bit of a, of a nudge, though, though, you know, that still remains to be seen around the, the COVID-19 vaccine. But in no way is it to suggest that people shouldn't get vaccinated. Um, you know, it, sleep is important for lots of things and for your health in general. But, um, you know, these tools are developed to um, very carefully to ensure that our immune systems are, are built to fight off this, this current problem. And 
um, I urge anyone to that can get a vaccine to get one um, to kind of stave off this pandemic. Wow, that was fascinating. Is there anything else you'd like our sleep colleagues to know? You know, I mean, I think this is a, a ripe area for uh, scientific inquiry, and I urge people to kind of build partnerships with immunologists, with molecular biologists, and our fellow circadian scientists to to really begin to to kind of unpack these um, these questions and make advances. I think there are you know endless um, inroads that we can make. Um, to advance the science, and I hope that people will, um, you know, begin to take on some of these pressing questions. Oh, thank you so much for sharing this knowledge with us. Uh, I really appreciate the time that you've taken to spend with us today. Absolutely, thank you. Thank you for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.